0: That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. Spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, body. Hi, this is Dante Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dante Daniels on the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul. And today's topic is the truth about cancer. Yes, the truth about cancer. As many of you know, there's been a big series about this on the Internet, and I just decided I really can't remain silent any longer. So tonight we're going to talk about is uh, the diagnostic and prognostic process. What does the diagnosis really mean? And how accurate is the diagnosis? And how effective is the therapy? And this, as always, is shocking. And um, if it's too shocking for you, you can always go to my other show, which is Waking Up is Hard to Do. It's in the um, archives. So you may need to go back and listen to that one again. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, first of all, we're going to talk about some common cancers. We're going to talk about how they're diagnosed, how your doctor knows that, Uh, you have them and what's the risk of, what's the future hold, you know, when you you get the uh, we'll call it the news. But first we're going to start with uh, breast cancer then we're going to do uh, esophageal cancer, then prostate cancer and then thyroid cancer. Hopefully we'll have enough time for all those. I think it's important to have some idea of just what your doctor is basing uh, the, the, this diagnosis on. All right. So first of all, with uh, breast cancer, we've got more than just cancer to consider here. We have the BRAC gene test. This is the test you get to uh, determine if you are at high risk for getting breast cancer. And who knows? Maybe you should get your breast removed. Well, you know, just in case. Yeah, just in case. So. I had to tell you in medical school what happened. So, of course, medical school, they teach you about all these diseases. And by the time they got through teaching us about diseases, I mean, I had to take a look at my breasts and say, oh my God, do I really need these? Is it worth the risk? Is it worth the pain? Uh, and and a breast cancer? Isn't there something that can be done? And so, of course, <laughs> apparently I wasn't the only one thinking. That. So we had to, of course, come up with the medical industrial complex had to address this concern by coming up with the uh, BRAC gene test. And your doctor gets the same mail I do, because all I do is read their, the doctor feed. This is Medscape Family Medicine. And the headline, Conflicting Interpretation of Cancer Genetic Test Results is Common. I'll repeat that again. Conflicting interpretation of cancer genetic test results are common. What does this mean? Let's put this in English. This means that when your genetic profile is being examined, the test results can be different depending on which laboratory looks at them under the microscope. And give you a little more English interpretation means these test results are not reliable or, for the most part, reproducible. And so let's just see how bad it is. Like, how bad does it have to get for them to send your doctor an email? Let's take a look and see. So I say, we should aim to decrease this percentage of genetic findings with conflicting interpretation, since many medical management decisions for the person being tested and their family members rely on this interpretation. Dr. So-and-so says. So... Um, And these are laboratories that are clinical laboratory improvement amendments, CLIA-approved, commercial laboratories. That means these laboratories have been inspected. They've been sent samples to, um, uniform samples to examine, to verify that this is indeed a good lab. It's doing a good job. And so 26% of the interpretations Of these genetic samples differed among the reporting labs. Now, that's a pretty big variation 26%. That means at best you can rely on the results 74% of the time. These are just percentages. This is a random occurrence. Does this mean, does this tell you anything about whether your BRAC gene test is accurate or reliable? No, it doesn't. It's just like going into a casino. We have a certain percentage chance of winning, a certain percentage chance of losing. But does that tell you whether you are going to be a winner or a loser on this particular roll of the dice? Absolutely not. So even though unreliability level is 26%, first of all, it's pretty darn high. But second of all, it just means that this, when someone says you have the BRAC gene, there's a 26% chance that that's not exactly what you have. That's number one. Let's go further. Let's go dig a little deeper. So 15% of those who have the gene will not be identified by the test. And they even put test in parentheses. In other words, they even have doubts as to whether this test is really indeed a test. All right, so 15% of those who have the gene will not be identified by the test, number one. Next, 10% of the test results will be indeterminate. And oh, this like, well, dude, we just don't know. And 12% will be, of course, false, negative. So in one, one case, uh, it was 12, uh, 15%, 12%, which is pretty close. So this is shocking. It even goes so far as to say, get this, it is important to note that these estimated percentages of lifetime risk, those risks for uh, cancer based on the BRCAC gene, from those available previously, the estimates have changed as more information has become available, and they may change again with additional research. No long-term general population studies have directly compared cancer risk in women who have and do not have a harmful BRAC1 or BRAC2 mutation. Okay. So here's a disclaimer from the people who do the test saying, hey, there's really been no long-term research indicating the true risk to anyone who's identified as having a gene. So we have one point of uncertainty, which is the test itself, in at least 26% of cases, is not accurate. Gotcha. Gotcha. In the 76% of cases where it is accurate, there have been no studies to link having this gene to any particular cancer risk. All right. So we've got the test is unreliable. Number two, even if the tests were 100% accurate, the meaning of the test is not something that is backed by science, even though it may be agreed upon. Okay, gotcha. But it doesn't stop there. So who should consider genetic testing for these mutations? So because harmful, tests, harmful genes, BRAC1 and BRAC2, are relatively rare in the general population, most experts agree that mutation testing of individuals who do not have cancer should be performed only when the person's individual or family history suggests the possible presence of a harmful mutation. Whoa, whoa. Back up. So what we have going on here, then, is we have selective use of this test. So only people who are at high risk due to epidemiology, uh, a parent with this genetic problem, or, I'm sorry, with breast cancer, siblings with breast cancer, so on, should consider testing. Now, 0.3% of people have this mutation. So if 0.3% of people have this mutation, and 25% of all the test results are, let's put it politely, not accurate, then the genetic test does not have the ability to detect this gene. It's like having a filter with holes 25 units wide, trying to filter out a pebble that's 0.3 units in diameter, that pebble will slip through the screen every time. Okay, so now we've got a test with a, 26, a 26% error rate in terms of accurately determining if the gene is there. We have a gene frequency that's only present in 0.3% of people. And so now we're only going to test populations that have a very high risk of breast cancer. So what's really happening here, then, is we have a genetic test, which is inaccurate slash irrelevant, and it's being used as a surrogate marker for risk in a population we have already segregated people who have very high risk. In other words, to break this what may seem complicated thing down to very plain English, the gene has no predictive value. It can't. It can't have predictive value because, for a couple of reasons. One, you don't have the ability to detect it down to the 0.3% frequency in which it exists in the population. In other words, if you have a a uh, true positive rate in the population of 0.3%, only a test with an accuracy of 99.7% that's 100 minus 0.3 just so let you know you need that level of accuracy to accurately even detect a gene that's that rare. So if you have an uh, error rate in a test that's 26%, that test is only good if you're looking for something that exists in greater than 26% of the population. Okay, that's statistics 202, not 101. I took 101 in high school, took 202 at Harvard, and I said, oh, my God, shocking, yes. So, we have a gene frequency of 0.3% and a population, a gene frequency of 0.3%, and we're using a test with a 26% error rate to detect that gene. So, the test cannot detect accurately that gene in any population. Okay. So, it doesn't stop there. So, as with women who have ovarian cancer in the family, for example, What they really have is a habit of douching. We talked about that two episodes ago. That's communicated from mother to daughter with the habit of douching being communicated. So with the commercial douches, the lady is what? Putting benzene, cancer-causing chemical, into her vagina, which goes, diffuses through her mucosal membrane to her ovaries, and boom, she gets cancer. So of course, you only test women who have mothers that had ovarian cancer for the gene. And the BRAC thing for cancer is the same. If you're only testing women who have a parent with breast cancer, then you can't tease out or separate out the unknown cultural practices which are spread from mother to daughter that may actually be causing the cancer. And especially in a case where you have a test whose accuracy or inaccuracy is so large, it can't detect the small frequency of the cancer. Okay. And so if you test only women who have mothers that had ovarian cancer for the gene, this conceals the fact that the gene test is irrelevant. If you tested all women, the inaccuracy of the test would, of course, be exposed. For example, it might become clear that the gene has the same prevalence in those who don't have breast cancer. Again, if you did a population test here. But wait, but wait. The Journal of the American Medical Association has helped us a little bit with this. Yes, indeed. they have helped us out. Not often that you get, you know, help when you need it. And what do they say? People with the gene mutation live longer than those without the gene mutation. Interesting. So results with five-year overall survival, so when you do get cancer, of the breast is what they looked at. The five-year overall survival for those who carried this. Uh, genes, genes for which people are getting their breasts removed, by the way, was 36%, and for non-carriers, was 44%. That's a substantial uh, you know, survival difference here. We're talking you know, 20% greater survival. Uh, that's for BRAC1. And for 52% for BRCA2 carriers. So if you don't have the gene, your chances of surviving breast cancer is 36%. But if you have the gene, it raises that 36% to 44% or 52%, depending on which cancer-causing gene that you have. So in other words, even this, this JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association article, had to conclude that among patients with invasive uh, Cancer is a five-year overall improved survival. And, of course, BRCA2 cures had the best prognosis. Well, duh, what's going on here, right? Why, then, is a gene being given a negative medical connotation driving women even to have both breasts removed? Also, by the way, just because you have both breasts removed does not mean you won't get breast cancer. Now, that's a bummer, (laughs) if you ask me. But this is kind of like, you know, calling prostate cancer disease. We'll get to that in a minute. When those who have it live longer. So let's go a little further with breast cancer. For breast cancer, 12.32% of American women will be told that they have breast cancer. This is up, by the way, from as little as 9% back in... uh, 2008, just 10 years ago, so something's happening. But 2.69% will die of it. This means if you're diagnosed with breast cancer, you have, let's do the math, right, 2.69 divided by 12.32 is 21%. So 21 100% chance you're going to die of breast cancer, which means a 39% chance that you're not going to die of breast cancer. You're going to die of something else. What's going on? So if someone says you have breast cancer, you look at these numbers, well, your chances of dying of it of not dying of breast cancer is 79 percent. And since all of us have to die of something, you have a 100 percent chance of dying of something. But if you have a breast cancer diagnosis, your chances of dying of breast cancer, or I should say, of not dying of breast cancer is 79 percent. So literally, there's a negative predictive value. Of 79% so if you are a woman and you're told for whatever reason that you have breast cancer your best bet is to ignore it and go ahead and die of the 79% of things not related to the breast cancer now of course there's a lot of that's just my slant on things and as always this is definitely my opinion not medical advice Uh, you know consult your medical doctor if you like. Okay, so with breast cancer, we've got a a breast cancer gene that you can get tested for using a test whose accuracy is less than the frequency of people whose error rate is higher than the frequency of the gene in the population. That is a problem. So the test is inherently unreliable, number one. Number two, if you have the gene, that it has a positive predictive value, which is that should you get breast cancer, you will likely have a much better prognosis than someone who does not have the gene. And your overall survival rate with the breast cancer diagnosis is 79%. I know what you're thinking. Well, but doctor, isn't that 79% survival rate due to therapy? Well, anything's possible. But if you talk to, you know, if you look at the medical industrial complex, their numbers, they believe that only 3% of cancer survival can be attributed to uh, chemotherapy. So there you have that. And, of course, we have the recent scandal, I should say the emerging blossoming scandal, that DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, is actually not cancer, although it's called in its name Cancer, carcinoma. Okay, so for breast cancer then, the truth about cancer, what's the truth? The truth is it's not especially deadly. So your chances of dying of it, given you have the diagnosis, is 21%. Well, what's the chances just random of dying of cancer if you're an American citizen? Just Let's just take the total deaths per year, and divide it into a number who die of cancer, period. What's that number? 35%. So in other words, you have a random chance of get a dying of cancer, 35%. If you get the diagnosis of breast cancer, your chance of dying of cancer is actually 21%. It's reduced. In other words, diagnose, the diagnosis of breast cancer does not have the ability to predict if you are at increased risk of dying of cancer as is all cause cancer. Don't you're diagnosed with breast cancer, you're just concerned with this particular cancer. But so being diagnosed with breast cancer in no way increases your certainty that you're going to die of cancer. And this is the truth about cancer. So the truth about cancer is that the diagnostic process is fraught with issues such that a person diagnosed with cancer, in this case, breast cancer has less of a chance of dying of cancer than a random person in the population. That's number one. Number two, the cancer industry itself believes it only has at best a 3% beneficial impact on survival. And so, this 21% death risk, which is lower, so the risk of dying of cancer is lower in a woman diagnosed with breast cancer than in just a random person, that that diagnostic improved outcome can only be attributed to the segregation of healthy women and labeling with this cancer diagnosis. All right, that's the breast cancer story. Let's go take a look at esophageal cancer. Now, esophageal cancer, uh, this is an interesting cancer because esophageal cancer is, is devastating, is uh, deadly, very high uh, death rate, very poor prognosis. But let's just take a look at this cancer and see how accurate the um, diagnosis is for esophageal cancer. So... So the issue here, then, is a lot of times people are told they have cancer uh, when they have screening tests. So this is esophageal cancer screening, and this is uh, information only for patients. This is bad enough, and this is just for patients. So uh, screening is looking for cancer before a person has any symptoms. This can help find cancer at an early stage. When abnormal tissue or cancer is found early, it may be easier to treat. But then again, it may not. By the time symptoms appear, cancer may have begun to spread. It's important to remember your doctor does not necessarily think you have cancer if they suggest a screening test. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. Of course your doctor thinks you may have cancer. That's why he does the screening test. I say diagnostic test. So we're saying, okay, screen test it when you have no cancer symptoms. Now, the big issue here with uh, esophageal cancer is esophageal cancer, like I said, is a devastating uh, disease. And so here we have a, a PubMed article. This is a national uh, library of medicine. Headline, procedure-related false positive cytology results during esophageal or EUS endoscopic guided fine needle aspiration in patients with esophageal cancer. What does this mean? This means that the holy grail of cancer diagnosis, which is you take a needle, put it into where you think the cancer is, suck out some cells, examine them under the microscope, and it looks like cancer. And so what they're saying then Is This is a standard staging procedure in esophageal cancer, and for adequate staging, fine needle aspiration of suspicious lymph nodes is recommended. The working channel of the endoscope can potentially be contaminated by cancer cells derived from the luminal surface of esophageal cancer, and which results in a false positive cytology, in other words, false positive lymph nodes. So a doctor can tell you, you have esophageal cancer, cancer is cancer has spread, when actually, it really hasn't. And so they did an experiment to determine whether uh, passing this endoscope through uh, the cancer to get through the, through the lymph node can lead to contamination of the working channel with uh, tumor cells. What well, there their conclusion in this study? but in a teaching hospital, by the way, the working channel of the endoscope can be contaminated during fine needle aspiration procedure. And so again, this is another case where you can be told you have an advanced stage of cancer when actually you don't. Oops. We made a mistake. Sorry. So Let's see uh, what else we can, we can uh, see here. False positive diagnosis of metastatic esophageal cancer on positron emission tomography. Now, this is, this is the ultimate test, a PET scan, very expensive, much more uh, pricey than, say, a CT scan. A case report of cholecystitis mimicking a liver metastasis. Okay, so esophageal cancer has been increasing in incidence for the past several decades. And uh, this increasing incidence, of course, has correlated with, by the way, proton pump inhibitors. (laughs) So, uh, but that's another story. The current staging evaluation includes CT scan, endoscopic ultrasonography, that means they put a tube down your throat and send out sound waves, and F18 fluorodeoxyglucose positron emission tomography, computed tomography. What does that mean? It means they have you swallow this uh, dye and then they, using... um, positive positive emission tomography uh, stimulates this dye to get uh, supposedly the cancer. Of course, this influences treatment options. And PET scan, CT scan, is limited in its ability to differentiate hypermetabolic cancer tissue from chronic inflammatory conditions like a gallbladder. And this is a case report of a 77-year-old man with esophageal cancer whose x-rays demonstrated increased dye uptake in the right lobe of the liver. This was originally interpreted at an outside institution as suspicious for metastatic disease, which would have precluded surgical cure. Subsequent reinterpretation and additional imaging, including magnetic resonance imaging, that's MRI, another very expensive x-ray, suggested that the uptake in the liver was likely due to Adjacent gallbladder inflammation. On the basis of this interpretation, an abdominal exploration, major surgery, liver biopsy, removal of the gallbladder, and cutting out his esophagus. Wow, was performed. Seventy-seven year old guy to survive all that. He's pretty healthy. Probably didn't need any of it. So, final pathology of the gallbladder revealed a perforated cholecystitis, and an abscess, which were responsible for the x-ray findings. So probably had they properly treated his esophageal, I mean, his uh, gallbladder problem, it would have drained the toxins and he might not have ever had the cancer, just my speculation. But again, this is a case where you have a person, they've received all these tests. This is easily, before the surgery, $20,000 worth of testing only for it to be unreliable. Let's take a look at thyroid cancer. So we have here esophageal cancer. Let me see if we have any other uh, cases of false positive uh, thyroid. I mean uh, esophageal cancer results. So this is this is the key. The key is that the diagnostic criteria used, are not as infallible as many patients, or we'll just say citizens, are led uh, to to believe. And this is a problem, because once you get the diagnosis, or a loved one gets a diagnosis, the problem is, even if that individual may choose not to accept or believe the diagnosis, they're surrounded by... People who feel they have a duty to get this person to submit to whatever the medical industrial complex might might put out. So these diagnoses and these cancer stagings are not as um, not as clear cut as one might think. So let's take a look at thyroid cancer. This is a sad but true story. So for thyroid cancer, uh, this is uh, papillary uh, cancer of the thyroid. And this is Medscape Family Medicine, and this is April 15, 2016. Thyroid cancer subtype reclassified as non-cancer. Yes, reclassified as non-cancer. Now, this means that something that was cancer treated with surgery, radioactive therapy, lifetime of surveillance, is now considered, Oops, we've changed our mind. No, we didn't make a mistake. We changed our mind. It's not really cancer. Correct. Now, why do you need to wait for the medical industrial complex to reclassify your cancer as not really cancer? You can take that upon yourself. So let's see. An international panel of pathologists and clinicians has reclassified a type of thyroid cancer to reflect that it is non invasive and has a low risk for recurrence. Back up. You mean they just had a committee meeting? So all they did was they had a committee meeting, a committee met, and just checked the box and said, hey, we don't think this is cancer. So if we have cancer being classified as such based on Committee meetings, you know, like the school board passes a bond issue or, you know, the government passes a one law saying a drug is illegal then they pass another law saying it's legal. None of this in any way changes the medical properties of the, the drug or the herb or whatever. And so the question is, how reliable is it when someone tells you, hey, you, you. You've got cancer. Hmm. Huh. Okay, let's see what they have to say. The panel renamed encapsulated follicular variant of papillary thyroid carcinoma as non-invasive follicular thyroid neoplasm with papillary-like nuclear features. Now, notice they re- replaced the word carcinoma with the word neoplasm, both, of course, implying a deadly cancerous disease, of which, of course, this is not. And they say, to my knowledge, this is the first time in modern era that a type of cancer is being reclassified as a non-cancer. This is an important observation because what has happened in the modern era, let's just era, let's say the past uh, 30 years, certainly since I've been at this, which has been since 1979, what we've had instead is an increasing classification of pre-cancer of harmless lesions and a tendency to treat them as if they actually are cancer when they are not cancer. And so this is the first time, this is 2016, that a cancer has been downgraded. And so this is uh, a reflection of the underlying issue, which is that when you are told you have cancer, you have to seriously clarify the meaning of that. Have you just been identified to have a lesion like thyroid cancer subtype, which is now reclassified as non-cancer? This is an important thing that I think is being under-considered or even not considered Uh in the present discussion of cancer. And so we have here, the National Cancer Institute says, stop calling low-risk lesions cancer. Holy smokes. So the practice, and this came out in 2013. So this has been three years now in the making, but the National uh, Cancer Institute has new proposals to reduce the over- diagnosis of cancer. So there's actually a consensus in the medical industry to stop calling things cancer that have no uh, impact on the person's health, at least no negative impact. So the practice of oncology in the United States is in need of a host of reforms and initiatives to mitigate the problem of overdiagnosis and overtreatment of cancer, according to a working group sanctioned by the National Cancer Institute. Perhaps most dramatically, the group says that a number of pre-malignant conditions, including ductal carcinoma in situ—that's the breast cancer—and high-grade prosthetic intraepithelial neoplasia should no longer be called cancer. Instead, the condition should be labeled something more appropriate, like uh, indolent. That means slow, growing, harmless. Lesions of epithelial origin. That would be a temple, slow, growing, indolent. Use of the term cancer should be reserved for describing lesions with a reasonable likelihood of deadly progression if left untreated. I'll repeat that cancer should be reserved for describing lesions with a reasonable likelihood of lethal progression if left untreated. I'll even clarify that for you. If cancer kills 35% of Americans, then any cancer with a death rate less than that or any lesion should not be classified as cancer, right? Because it can't be likely expected to lead to the person's death. The group was charged with creating recommendations after a National Institute of Health conference in March 2012, where I imagine the problem was discovered. So a multidisciplinary effort across pathology, that's the guy in the basement who reads the slide, imaging, that's the person who does the x-rays like the uh, mammograms, the PET scans, and CAT scans, surgical, people who cut this stuff out, advocate, I guess somebody represents patients, and medical communities could be convened by an independent group to revise the taxonomy, that means the naming process, of lesions now called cancer and to create a reclassification criteria for idle, as in uh, worthless do-nothing conditions. Now, the um, idol is indolent lesions of epithelial origin. So IDLE is where it comes from. So the reforms are needed because over the last 30 years or so, cancer screening in the United States has become highly problematic. At the heart of the problem is the fact that programs designed to reduce the rate of late-stage disease and decrease cancer mortality have not met these goals. In other words, The lesions that have been identified in the screening process are lesions that never would have progressed to late-stage disease, and the late-stage disease has not been detected or reduced. So cancer screening has missed some pretty important goals here. So there's now an increasing consensus. That's consensus. That means people agree that over-detection and over-treatment are becoming real problems. So, in addition to changes in cancer terminology, four other major proposals are wide-ranging and varied. The first is the public relations effort. So how do you say, hey, guys, we, the medical-industrial complex, have been chopping you up, mutilating you, and giving you chemotherapy unnecessarily for conditions that were basically, well, harmless. So another proposal is to create observational registries for lesions with low malignant potential. This would improve information about related disease progression, which would help in the uptake of alternative treatment strategies such as active surveillance. Alternative treatment strategy, diet is not considered one. So what they're saying is, let's give the medical industrial complex another role—one of observing people and putting them under surveillance when these harmless lesions are discovered. Because registries are an expensive undertaking, they will be the least likely of the proposed steps to be implemented. Well, that's too bad. Another proposal to mitigate overdiagnosis is to reduce the detection of indolent disease. In other words. Reduce early detection, duh, (laughs) Okay, such as reducing low-yield diagnostic evaluations appropriately, reducing the frequency of screening examinations, focusing screening on high-risk populations, and raising thresholds for recall and biopsy. So can you imagine telling a patient, the test I just did was a valid test. It told me you have cancer. However, based on our historical experience, We shouldn't do anything about it. Instead, we should just maybe have a doctor visit every year for the rest of your life. We can, for example, do a fairly good job before a biopsy of the prostate is performed of predicting what sort of tumor is most likely to be found, a slow-growing tumor of no consequence or a fast-growing deadly tumor with a risk calculator, such as the Prostate Cancer Prevention Trial Prostate Cancer Risk Calculator. Again, the question is how do you get people to buy into increased surveillance and medical intervention when the condition for which they're receiving intervention is harmless? So finally, the working group proposes expanding the concept of how to approach disease progression. This concept would yield ideally alternatives to surgical excision by controlling the environment in which precancerous and cancerous conditions arise. Strategies such as diet or chemo prevention may be as effective and less toxic than more traditional therapies in lower-risk tumors, Dr. Thompson explained. Well, certainly for, for prostate cancer, diet is extremely effective, and they're, they're really, uh, it's tough to make a case for anything else. Three instructive major trends has emerged over the past 35 years. Two negative trends and one positive trend. Well, good news is always nice. The first trend is that certain cancers, like breast and prostate, screening has led to an overall increase in incidence rates because both indolent and consequential tumors are identified. This is a problem because screening appears to detect more cancers that are potentially clinically insignificant. I'll repeat that. Screening appears to detect cancers that are clinically insignificant. In other words, that if you left them alone and never detected them, well, nothing would have happened. Lung cancer promises to create the same problem if high-risk screening is widely adopted. And so they're going to start lung cancer screening. We mentioned that in a prior radio show. And so here they feel like, wait, if we do lung cancer screening, we're going to detect lung cancers that if left untreated never would have been a problem in a person's natural lifetime. In other words, a person would go on to die of something else. A working group provides supporting statistics, and this is, this is huge. In, so in 1975, before mammography, screening was prevalent. The incident, before anyone got screened, the incidence rate for breast cancer was 105 cases per 100,000 population. In 2010, the rate was 126, an increase of 20%. Over that time, it's a 30% mortality decrease from 31 to 21 deaths per 100,000. However, at least two-thirds of the mortality reduction is believed attributable to adjuvant therapy, they know. However, again, what we have going on here is 105 cases per 100,000. But the mortality decrease here is is irrelevant because you've treated an additional 26 cases that didn't need treatment. The second trend is that screening expands the rate of indolent tumors with little or no effect on the small population of more aggressive tumors. The best examples of this are found in thyroid cancer and melanoma, the working group reports. So the same 35-year period, the incidence of thyroid cancers jumped 185% from 5 to 14. However, the, the mortality rate remained at the same, 0.5 per 100,000. So the additional 9 per 100,000 were treated. So basically with the medical industrial complex tripled its revenue and did not in any way impinge on the mortality rate per 100,000. And then looking at uh, breast cancer and prostate cancer, the reductions in mortality can easily be attributed to um, other factors, such as lifestyle uh, changes or difference in cultural practices. In addition, the incidence rate of melanoma rocketed up 199% from 8 per 100,000 to 23 per 100,000. But the mortality rate did not change. It increased from 2.07 to 2. Seven per 100,000. So, what's happening then is the screening is simply multiplying, doubling, and tripling the number of citizens being treated for cancer without having a substantial impact on the mortality rate, or I should say, a beneficial impact. Because the third trend is a positive one. Let's get some positive information here. According to the working group, screening has substantially decreased. incidence and mortality. So the tumor population is more homogenous, slower growing, but consequential. Well, this is uh, open to question. So colon and cervical cancer are the best examples of this. In each case, effective screening programs have led to early detection and removal of precancerous lesions, which in turn have reduced incidence and late-stage disease. The numbers bear out. The incidence rate of colon cancer dropped 31%. The mortality rate dropped 45%. The improvement in cervical cancer was even more dramatic. The incidence rate dropped 55% over the study period from 15 per 100,000 to 7 per 100,000. The mortality rate dropped 60% from 5.5 to 2.2 per 100,000. Now, one has to step in here with a little bit more of a, say a sideways glance, look to your left, look to your right. So the question is, is your longevity? The answer is no, that these people are actually dying, certainly from cervical cancer, of other conditions. So while these annual pap smears may have kept these ladies from dying of cervical cancer, the same population has an increased death rate from other causes. As you can see, it doesn't take much. Uh, they only need to have, a, so they said the death rate fell from 5.5 per 100,000 to 2.2 per 100,000. And so basically, what we're saying here is three lives per 100,000 were extended, not say that everyone dies of something. But three lives per 100,000 were extended because every woman got annual pap smears from the age of 18 to uh, 60. That's a pretty high price to pay. And so what they've determined is that cancer screening frequency needs to be optimal and depends on the cancer's growth rate. And, of course, the problem, of course, if you decrease the frequency screening rates, then obviously the screening will be totally ineffective to the extent that there's any evidence that it's effective here. But what we're finding then is the truth about cancer. You only have six minutes, so we're going to do the truth about cancer and cut to the chase is when you consent to cancer screening or treatment, you lose because the screening is not accurate, you lose because the treatment is not effective, and you lose because there's easily, again, according to their, their statistics, 60% over treatment rate. That's huge. All right, We've got tons of questions in the chat room. Let's check the phone line, see if there are questions there as well. Okay. Let's uh, see if we can answer questions. Hi, you're on the air. Your name and your question. Ten, ten or twelve, ten years or ten. And your question? Maybe they're having money problems. Who knows? Okay. Let's see. How the chat room is doing. Got a lot of chatter going on. All right. Last time. (laughs) All right. So, what does cause cancer? Is it a fungus? My opinion? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, What causes cancer is the is dead and dying tissue the person's tissue is dying because they have too many um, poisonous chemicals the body of course tries to minimize the damage by putting it in one place tissue is damaged uh, and the fungus is there to clean up the dead tissue similarly uh, parasites you can get a chronic parasitic infection and again what do parasites do they eat your tissue your live tissue creating dead tissue Fungus then moves in to clean up the dead tissue, so the fungus is not the cause of the cancer. And so, if you spend your time simply addressing the fungus, then that is not going to, uh, it's not going to work. <laughs> uh, Doctor Daniels, what ultimately inspired you to stand up against the medical industry, and why? You know, what really got me was after I submitted to a third unnecessary surgery, so. I was told that I needed an emergency C-section. And I've been to medical school. I know what the criteria were, all the tests, you know, the monitoring showed that that was indeed the case. They did the C-section. The baby came out perfectly healthy and vigorous. No need for the C-section, obviously. The baby was not at all compromised. But not only that, then the doctor manufactured a complication, which he eventually did do, to increase his reimbursement, and he was successful. I developed a pelvic abscess. And the cumulative hospital bill came to over $13,000. This is back in 1990 when the average hospital bill for a C-section or for um, delivery, even with a C-section, was only th- uh, $4,000. My insurance paid the whole thing. So I had a false diagnosis of need for emergency C-section. Then um, I had a really bad tummy ache. and It lasted two days. It would not go away. So I went to the emergency room. Bad move. They diagnosed um, bowel obstruction, and, of course, I looked at all the the x-rays and stuff, and I said, yep, fits all the criteria for everything that they told me to do in medical school. And, of course, they opened me up only to find there was no bowel obstruction at all. And um, at the same time, they took out my appendix, which is perfectly healthy. And so, you know, being subjected to all this unnecessary surgery, all done according to standard of care, by the way, I realized that there's a big problem here. Um, in any one of those surgeries, I could have died of complications. In fact, I had to, in one case, fire my doctor. In another case, accuse my doctor of causing a complication, whereupon I immediately stopped surgery, and I recovered and did fine. But I realized the danger the average American was in, that this is, this is just wholesale slaughter, mutilation, and homo- not homicide because it's lawful, but certainly killing. And I decided, you know what? <laughs> somebody's got to at least mention this. I mean, people may still want to um, submit to it, and that's fine. Everyone should have a choice, no problem. But when people just unknowingly submit to this, I mean, that's outrageous. So we are about out of time. But people can go to my website, VitalityCapsules.com, our sponsor, Vitality Capsules. Or they can also listen to old, old uh, episodes under replays and, um, and check it out. But the truth about cancer is it ain't cancer, the therapy doesn't work, and the tests are not reliable. So tests aren't accurate, they're not reliable, the treatment's not effective. Uh, If you have a life, for Christ's sake, go live it. And that is it. And as always, think, happens, and we'll see you next week.